0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: It's hard to talk about artificial intelligence nowadays without eventually stumbling into a debate on the potential horrors it could unleash bias, discrimination, mass devastation in the job market, and for the most pessimistic, even the extinction of humanity itself.
2: That some AI experts now predict artificial intelligence will become more intelligent than humans by the end of this decade.
1: Treated as a global
3: priority on par with pandemics and the threat of nuclear war. The man widely seen as the godfather of artificial intelligence has quit his job at Google, warning of the dangers of AI.
1: While it's entirely right to raise these concerns about the burgeoning AI revolution, focusing on them too much can also be overwhelming. In fact, there's a risk we can miss a bigger, much more exciting picture. What if, for all its potential downsides, AI could actually help humanity solve some of its biggest, thorniest, and most urgent problems? What if it could help tackle climate change, create better medicines, or understand the brain, In new ways. These are all the arguments of people who say that AI could do wonders for scientific research. These optimists say that AI could be, to modern scientists, what the telescope was to astronomers a few centuries ago. An essential technology that lets people see much farther and understand much more than they could ever do with the naked eye alone.
4: And these new generation of AI models have the potential to extract and leverage this much larger amount of information that is sort of hiding in plain sight.
1: By amplifying human intelligence and radically accelerating the pace of scientific research, there's a good chance that AI could lead to a new golden age of discovery. But how likely is that to happen This is Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha. Today, we look at the optimistic case for AI. AI in science is nothing new. It's been around in the scientific toolkit in one form or another since the 1960s. But it's only in the past few years that most scientists have been able to easily use it in their work. To discuss how scientists have been experimenting with AI in different ways, I'm joined by Abby Bertix, the Economist Science Correspondent, and as it happens, a former computer scientist herself. Thanks for joining me, Abby. Thanks for having me, Alc. Okay, Abby, set the scene
5: for us. When we talk about AI in science, what do we actually mean? So I think one of the major reasons why AI is going to be so useful towards solving tricky problems is that science has become very data driven. But when you have a bunch of data, it's kind of like a giant pile of hay, and there are a couple of needles in there, but it's a lot, a lot, a lot of hay. And someone I was talking to, Regina Barsley at MIT, she's a computer scientist, she said that AI acts as a metal detector, and it lets you find those needles in the haystack more easily. So in a world where science is increasingly data-driven, you need a way to process that data, and that's what AI kind of enables.
1: Lots of subjects in recent years have become much more computerized and data-driven, and not least things like molecular biology, genetics, etc. So talk me through some examples of how AIs are being used there.
5: So one big example was scientists used AI to discover a new antibiotic. And the way that they did this is antibiotics are thousands, millions of different possibilities. They're basically just small chemicals that stop the bacteria from growing One of the really, really important things with AI is having good quality training data. And what they did was take a few thousand compounds and test them against a bacterial superbug, something that was super antibiotic resistant, very difficult to control. And for each of the possible antibiotics, they tested how effective it was at killing the bacteria. I mean, once they had that training set, they trained a kind of deep learning model on it, trying to figure out the connections between the structure of the antibiotic and its ability to kill a bacteria. And then once they kind of had that trained model, they set it loose on a much larger data set of lots of variety of wild different compounds. And from that, they were able to identify a few potential candidates that seem to be particularly good at killing this bacteria. And then from that, they narrowed it down to the winner, halicin. And then they did this another time and narrowed down to another winner, abaucin. So what's
1: interesting about that example is that, as you say, the number of molecular compounds that could act as antibiotics is near infinite. It's, It's so huge. And Traditionally what you would do is to isolate them, test each one out in the lab against a bacterium, culture it and so on, which would take years, decades, thousands of scientists. It's just a really laborious process. And the technique you mentioned of training an AI on a few thousand antibiotics and how they worked, and then letting it loose on the much larger corpus of possibilities, to then identify a short list, which means that the scientists only had to test a few in the lab rather than trying to work through millions in order to find their candidates. One interesting thing about Hallison, which is the first one of those, is that it's named after Hal 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey. So the first antibiotic found by computer is named after the murderous computer in that film, which I think is quite interesting. But anyway, it's an interesting way of speeding up part of the trial and error process, right? And I suppose one example of AI in science that's probably got the most headlines in the past few years is from Google DeepMind. It's called AlphaFold, the model. Explain what that did.
5: So AlphaFold is designed to predict the structure of a protein from its amino acid sequence. And that's a really important problem because until AlphaFold kind of cropped up, it would take years, hundreds of thousands of dollars to figure that out per protein. It's like a whole PhD project in and of itself. How proteins fold is really, really complicated. They start as a super long molecule, and then it somehow magically folds up in a fancy way and has the structure. And the structure is what scientists really want. That's really important. It dictates how it works in the cell and what it's doing and who it works with and how to stop it. So having this kind of tool, this shortcut that lets you go from a amino acid sequence, which you can get easily in the lab, you can just spin it down, get the sequence, to its structure is really important in terms of application.
1: And has it been useful to scientists in the years it's been released?
5: Yeah, it's been, I mean, according to DeepMind, and there have been a bunch of papers on this as well, scientists have found use for it. They've created a database of 200 million protein structures using AlphaFold, and now scientists are able to kind of just go to that database with their amino acid sequence and look up the structure. Now, the database isn't right all of the time. There are certain proteins that are really tricky for it to get right, and sometimes it just might be wrong. But for the most part, especially if you can experimentally verify this later on, like verify its prediction, it's a very useful tool that saves a lot of time and accelerates science.
1: So it's a bit like this enormous hypothesis space. And If you can just know which direction to go in, that saves you a lot of time. Even if you then actually have to do the experiments yourself to check it all and everything. And yes, it might be wrong, but at least you're not far wrong. You're going in the right direction rather than shooting completely in the dark.
5: One interesting thing here is that scientists still want to know how proteins fold. Alpha fold doesn't really tell us how proteins fold, right? It's a black box. You give it the amino acid sequence and out pops the structure. So this doesn't mean that protein folding is solved. You could maybe, theoretically, look at this model and try to understand how things are folding and how it's coming up with its predictions. But having this tool isn't necessarily the same thing as having the scientific understanding of how the proteins are folding. So alpha-fold is useful, but there's still plenty of
1: limitations, right?
5: Yeah, it doesn't work for everybody. I spoke to Jane Dyson, a structural biologist at the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California. And she told me how, although it's a powerful tool, it doesn't work all the time for her.
6: What we work with are proteins that... Are not by themselves folded. They are actually disordered. And that's the way they work. And if you put this into Alpha Fold, they'll fold it up into something that's complete science fiction because it isn't folded in real life. I think it doesn't give you the answers. What it does is suggest experiments to you. That is what you can then use to find new stuff
5: out. So when people are saying like, ah, AlphaFolds revolutionized biology, what do you think they mean? It is very useful. It is. It's just that
6: it's not the solution to everything. And in many ways, it can actually be wrong. For most people, I would say, you know, they're going to come up with a protein sequence that maybe they derive from a gene and they will go, well, what does it look like? And so they'll have a look at it in alpha fold and that might give them some ideas about how they could confirm or refute that with experiments. But really, everybody's very happy to sit down at the computer and have the computer do all your work. But when it comes right down to it, you've really got to do some thinking and some experimenting and some testing. It doesn't solve the whole problem for us.
5: Do you think AlphaFold is kind of more of a party trick that's interesting and useful? Or do you think it's actually a changing practice in the field? You know, five years from now, is that just going to be something that you learn as a first year grad student to use AlphaFold and then everyone is using it?
6: Yeah, I think it is the sort of thing that people will use routinely more and more. In a way, it's a little bit disturbing because if everybody just uses AlphaFold and doesn't know how to do the basic X ray structure determination, for example, then At some point, we're going to worry that we're going to go off into some direction that is not right because we haven't got the (laughs) experimental data underlying
5: something. So it's not like this tool is creating better science itself. It's like something that a good scientist can use on their path. I mean, it's going to streamline things, that's for sure.
6: But I would say that you still got to be careful about how you use it. So you need context. Context, I think education mostly. Well, I mean, we have a system where things are vetted before they're published, but there can be some interesting wrong things put out there. If we start to believe things that the artificial intelligence tells us, without skepticism and without really examining it ourselves, there's a risk that we'll end up believing lies,
1: Abby, the past year, I suppose the public have woken up to the idea of generative AI, ChatGPT and its cousins. As we've spoken about already, AI in various forms has been used by scientists for a lot longer. But is there anything about generative AI, large language models and so on, that has got scientists excited in the past year?
5: Yes. So there's a bunch that's got scientists really excited We've seen generative AI as it kind of stands with language, right? ChatGPT generates things word at a time, more or less. Can give us a, like a one-minute summary of how it does that? They're trained on the statistics of the entire internet, and their specific goal is to, given the passwords that they've seen, predict what word is likely to go next and what word best fits next. And in doing so, they kind of are able to string together sentences of English that seem to be mostly factually correct, besides for some hallucinations.
1: And so in doing so, what you're doing is when you trained it on the entire language of the internet, it's worked out some statistical correlations between words so that this is the sort of structure of language. It doesn't understand language. It doesn't do any thinking, but it, it yeah. can statistically get the language correct. And so it sounds human, actually.
5: Yeah, it kind of learns linguistics as it's going just by...
1: But it doesn't know it's learned linguistics.
5: <laughs> no, it, it doesn't know anything. It's not animate, although it's easy to think that. So how are
1: scientists learn. using
5: that? So they've learned the statistics of the language, and sometimes they've also kind of picked up on culture and facts. And one scientist in particular said that you can use large language models. You can kind of say, pretend you are this person. You're a 34-year-old female. You love guns. You love freedom. Who are you going to vote for for president? You can use them in these social science experiments. You can use them as focus groups. You can kind of treat them like you would as a simulation of a human being.
1: That sounds fascinating. I'm assuming that's still a theory, though. I mean, has anyone tried this?
5: So there have been a couple experiments trying this. It's still relatively new. And they found that it kind of really is able to, on a statistical level, mirror what you would get out of a human focus group. This doesn't mean that you should replace human focus groups, but it means it might be a good way to quickly test your hypothesis on a simulation and then go on and verify it in humans.
1: I'm still skeptical that it would be as useful as talking to people, but I guess this is why we don't predict technology, right? You don't know where it's going to go. But in terms of generative AI in a larger sense, where is that being applied to science? Not the language stuff so much, but where is the sort of generative AI and its like being applied to various scientific disciplines?
5: One big example is, again, in drug discovery, drug design. So just as chat GPT or large language models generate word at a time, you can train a generative AI to make new molecules, making them atom by atom, bond by bond. And because just as ChatGPT was trained on like the entire internet, you can train these on lots of examples of existing molecules and their existing functions. If you give it a function, it can generate a molecule that does that thing.
1: That's interesting. So what you can say to the interface, I'd like a molecule that burns at this rate and produces this color explosion or something like that, and, and it would make it for you?
5: Um, theoretically, I don't know if that one exactly I mean, exists.
1: But... Maybe not something so violent, but, you know, something more useful. Like I needed to interact with this receptor in this way on this cell with no side effects or something like that.
5: That is the theory. It still kind of remains to be chosen. This is super early. There are a few drugs that have been designed from scratch using an AI, and they're still going through clinical trials or beginning animal testing. But the fact that something was able to be spat out by this AI and it kind of, worked more or less so far is really promising.
1: That's amazing. Abby, thank
5: you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Alk. One of the companies at the forefront of
1: bringing the latest AI models to scientific research is Google DeepMind. Accelerating scientific discovery is in fact one of the core aims of the company. A few years ago, it released AlphaFold, which as we've already discussed, could predict the structure of proteins. And this week, Google DeepMind released a new tool called Alpha Missense, which aims to help biologists tease out which mutations in the human genome could give rise to diseases. I spoke to Pushmeet Kohli, one of the inventors of AlphaVold, and now head of the AI for Science team at Google DeepMind.
4: Our DNA is like the book of life, the recipe of life. And so what happens when there are some changes that are introduced? In that sort of recipe. And this is what happens in the sense of missense mutation. These are specific mutations in our genome, which result in a change in an amino acid in our protein. Now, what is the effect of these proteins, right? If a single sort of change is made, sometimes you might get a disease like sickle cell or cystic fibrosis. So what alpha missense does is given a sort of mutation It is able to predict with very high confidence whether that mutation is likely pathogenic or is likely benign, whether it could be a disease-causing mutation or it should be fine.
1: I'd be interested to know, where do you think that the applications in the future are going to be for AIs, especially in the sort of generative age that we are in now with large language models and chat GPT and the like? Do you think that there's going to be a flowering of the kind of uses for scientific research in this age?
4: So I think it has unlocked the ability for us to really reason at scale. The tricky part with being a scientist today is basically the amount of work that is happening in science. And just keeping track of all the work, all the developments that are happening, it's extremely sort of difficult. And what AI and the new generation of machine learning techniques are able to do is basically allow us to scale our ability to reason over this huge amount of information. And I think that will sort of accelerate science in general. Generative AI in particular and technologies like large language models, they have unlocked another sort of ability, while models like AlphaFold were trained on structured information or structured experiences, like the protein database ranked, where you saw, well, here are some examples of protein sequences and their corresponding shapes. But there's a lot of information about science and about the world which is unstructured, which is sort of implicit in the text that scientists have written in their papers in an unstructured format. And these new generation of AI models have the potential to extract and leverage this much larger amount of information that is sort of hiding in plain sight, if you will.
1: I like the way you put that, reason at scale. That's exactly the kind of, I think the right analogy for this because Humans have come up with science and have done as well as they can with our brains, but actually being able to do the amounts of data processing you need to do to understand science nowadays is incredibly difficult and therefore slow. And I suppose these artificial cognitions in some way can help accelerate at least some parts of it. Where do you see the frontiers for AI in science now? What are the things that excite you the most in terms of the kinds of topics we can tackle?
4: Yeah, so I don't think there are limits I see the potential for AI in all these different disciplines. Biology is a personal sort of favorite of mine because of the sophistication of the biology we all, we all sort of have inherited. Like, it's a very complex area.
1: Where does AlphaFold and the sort of biology work that you guys are doing at Google DeepMind? Where does that go next? So,
4: in terms of our biology work, there's much that needs to be still done. AlphaFold makes predictions about the structure of proteins. but How do those structures influence function? What are the different ways in which proteins interact in our body? Even in the context of mutations or missense work, we can tell you whether a mutation is likely pathogenic or benign, but why is that? What are the mechanisms that make it pathogenic? What are the ways that we can actually design treatments to mitigate these things. There are so many other aspects of work that still need to be
1: tackled. Okay, Pashmeet, thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, thanks a lot.
4: It was a pleasure.
1: We've heard how AI can improve many aspects of what scientists can do. It can help them sift through mountains of data. It can provide useful predictions so that researchers know where to focus their work. And AI can even make scientists more efficient at reading papers. But can AI be more than just a productivity boost for the drudgy parts of research? As useful as that is, can it change the way scientists do science? Before we hear about that, though, we have some news. In mid-October, we'll be launching a new podcast subscription called Economist Podcast Plus. To carry on enjoying Babbage every week, as well as our other specialist podcasts like Checks and Balance on American politics or any of our special series, like The Prince, or Next Year in Moscow, you'll need to become a subscriber to Economist Podcast Plus. The expansion of all our brilliant podcasts has so far been made possible by advertising revenue, but we'd like to do much more. The Economist's core mission has always been to produce high-quality journalism for global audiences and to make it available at a fair price. We've relied on discerning subscribers to fund our distinctive brand of independent journalism since 1843. Podcast subscriptions will help us stick to our values of honesty, integrity and rationality in an increasingly confusing and polarised media landscape. And it'll help us deliver our plans for more ambitious audio journalism in the future. If you're already a subscriber to The Economist, thank you. You'll have full access to all our shows as part of your subscription. If you're not already a subscriber, you'll need to sign up for Economist Podcasts Plus. Your subscription will enable us to keep bringing you the shows you know and offer exclusive new series, including Boss Class, which is all about how not to be a terrible manager and perhaps how to be a great one. That's coming next month, If you sign up for Economist Podcast Plus before October the 17th, you can get a year-long subscription for half price at about $2, £2 or €2 a month. To sign up, visit economist.com slash podcast plus or see our show notes for more information and a link to our frequently asked questions.
2: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
1: Today on Babbage, we're looking at how AI can revolutionize science. Tom Standage, the Economist's deputy editor, has been thinking a lot recently about the scientific revolutions of the past, how they shaped the scientific method we know today, and whether AI can create the conditions for a new revolution. Tom, thank you for joining me. Great to be here. Tom, you've been reporting on how AI could change the scientific process.
3: What is the scientific process? Well, in theory, there's something called the scientific method. And the idea is that scientists go, hmm, a strange thing is happening. Maybe this is happening. So in other words, they make a hypothesis and then they do some experiments to test the hypothesis and then they analyse their results and then they reach a conclusion. And, you know, we're told to write it all down in a special way. And if you read a scientific paper, that's how it works as well. They describe the method and they describe the results and all the rest of it. In practice, real science is actually much messier than this. There's a lot more accidents and mistakes and things that go wrong. You just don't put that into the final scientific paper when you publish it at the end. And it all looks much neater and tidier than it really is.
1: I think to understand what we're going to talk about next, it's worth trying to understand what the milestones have been in developing what we call the scientific process now.
3: Yes, exactly. So it started to become more and more apparent in the 17th century that you should prioritise what you can see and what you can measure rather than what you read in books. And that then provides the foundation for an awful lot of new scientific theory and from that technological innovation. And so that was the sort of beginning of the process. And people sort of trace the modern world and all of the things that we have around us now back to that switch in mindset. That's one step. And then the next steps really sort of developed science as a discipline and then industrialised it. What are those? I think a really important one, again in the 17th century, is the introduction of scientific journals. And if you were researching stuff and you discovered something interesting and exciting in the past, then you might want to keep it secret. And what scientific journals do is they give you a way of publishing your findings to a like-minded community of investigators that shows that you found it, so you claim priority, and it also allows those other people to verify your results and then build upon those results. And so the scientific journal really changes the incentive structure for people who are finding out new things. It also means that you can tell what other people are looking into, and it allows you to start to build this collective body of knowledge that is bigger than anything that any individual knows or could do, and other people can come along later and then add their own brick to the edifice. And so you start to get the sort of accumulation of knowledge and understanding and of theory, and also greater complexity.
1: When does science enter its sort of more industrial age, to start really cranking out the inventions and materials and things that we kind of expect
3: it to do now? That happens in the 19th century with the introduction of more formalised research laboratories. And you get them both in academia, but you also get them in industry. So Thomas Edison famously has a sort of invention factory, and they go through thousands of candidates for the filament of incandescent bulbs. And that's the sort of thing where having lots and lots of people working on a problem allows you to do things you couldn't do before. And really, if you think about what a laboratory does, is it allows people and ideas to be brought together and mixed together in new ways more efficiently even than a journal allows you to do. So then you speed up the metabolism of science. And so you can then get a whole load of other breakthroughs and you can also do these sort of more industrialised sorts of science. So we get big companies setting up laboratories, you know, the transistor is invented at Bell Labs and that paves the way for modern computers. And you get modern pharmaceuticals as well. So we've talked about experimental observations,
1: journals, research laboratories. These things not only increased the volume of the research, but also allowed researchers to come together and share ideas and do things in different ways and change the way that science worked to bring it to where it is today. Now, this podcast is all about AI. And, you know, people in science have been using AI in all these different ways since the 1960s, I believe. If it's been around for so long, why are we only talking about it now as a potential game changer for what science is doing?
3: Well, I think we have to distinguish between two ways you can apply AI to science. One is that you can use AI to actually help you do the sort of existing scientific process. And this is what you've been talking to Abby about. The other way, though, is that you can use it as part of the Scientific process and even change the scientific process itself. And this has been going on for a very long time, almost as long as there's been computers. There was a project at Stanford in the 1960s called Dendril, and it generated hypotheses to try and help with the identification of unknown molecules in organic chemistry. But the idea of the project was actually bigger than that. I mean, that was the specific example they used. But what they were really trying to do was get at how scientists form hypotheses and say, can we get computers to help? And similarly, there was a system in the 1980s called Bacon named after Francis Bacon, who was very influential on the approach that scientists took in the 17th century. And this... 1980s system was an equation discovery system so you could throw data at it and it would come up with equations that fit the data and it was said to have sort of independently rediscovered a whole load of things like the laws of planetary motion so it's not just about generating new results it's about new ways of generating new results and new hypotheses and so we're seeing quite a proliferation in approaches to that now
1: so building on these examples from previous decades what's the sort of modern version?
3: Well, I think one of the most exciting examples of this is what's called literature-based discovery. Essentially, it involves analysing the scientific literature, so papers, or the abstracts of scientific papers, the summaries you get at the beginning, and looking for connections that people might not have spotted before. And one of the things that we know about modern AI is it's very good at language. Chatbots like ChatGPT, yes, they make mistakes, but they're just streets ahead of any system that's been able to do this in the past. And so If you apply that sort of approach to literature-based discovery, essentially you feed them a whole load of scientific papers and they're not doing what ChatGPT does, which is sort of summarising. What's really interesting is the way that these large language models build representations of concepts. You could do something like king minus man plus woman equals queen – which is a sort of weird vector mathematics of words. Kind of computer-based verbal reasoning, basically. Exactly. And if you build these sorts of models using scientific papers, then you get some quite interesting things happening because it turns out that the vectors are close to each other if the scientific concepts are close to each other. So, for example, you can say, if you've got a whole load of material science papers, what are materials that are similar to this? And it's deducing that similarity just from the language of the paper. There is sort of latent knowledge that's sitting in scientific papers that people didn't realise was there. But if you analyse enough of these papers and humans can't possibly read all of them, but machines can, then you can spot connections that people hadn't noticed before. The original example was to do with Raynaud's disease, which is a circulatory disorder. And there were a bunch of papers that said Raynaud's disease seems to be related to blood viscosity. And there were another bunch of papers that said fish oil seems to affect in fact, reduce blood viscosity. And so this original system put together these two results in the 1980s and said, well, maybe you should try using fish oil to treat brain nodes. And it does seem to have some effectiveness in doing this. So it turns out that there is knowledge about the world embedded in language. And if you analyse the language, you can find out about the world.
1: These literature-based discovery systems do more than just predict materials. They can actually predict who will discover things as well, which I found quite interesting.
3: Yes, these systems can be made to do more than just sort of join these missing dots. You can train them and then you can keep secret from them the last couple of years of results. And then you can ask them to predict what was actually discovered in those last two years. And they do a very good job of predicting what the next discoveries being made in a particular field were. And in some cases, it can even predict who made those discoveries. And I think this is one of the most interesting results. So there's another paper done by two sociologists at the University of Chicago. And instead of just looking at the text of these papers, they also take into account who the authors of the papers being examined. And what that allows you to do is it allows you to predict who's likely to discover what. But it also means that you can spot connections between fields, and then you can say this researcher maybe should be collaborating with this researcher because they don't realise it, but there's this missing link between the things they're working on that could potentially be worth investigating. So in effect, what these systems are doing is they're proposing new hypotheses for experimental testing. And in some cases, they can even propose which scientists should collaborate to investigate that particular hypothesis. So a scientific dating service of some sort. (laughs) Right, exactly. It's a sort of scientific matchmaking service. And that really rings a bell for me, because that's what journals were doing. Journals were doing that much more slowly, and you had to read them, and they had to be printed and distributed, and it takes a long time. But essentially, that sort of social networking between scientists, spotting the connections... And this may be something that scientists come to rely on in the future, that there's a sort of cloud-based service that runs all the time that tells them which results in other fields they might want to read and even says, you might want to send an email to that researcher over there because it looks like there's this interesting hypothesis that links your work to theirs. And that sounds to me like a potentially very big change in the way science works in the same way that journals were in the 17th century.
1: So what Tom's just been describing is a kind of modern, supercharged version of the scientific journal. But the other element in the history of science that he argues accelerated the pace of discovery was the scientific laboratory. To understand how AI could revolutionise lab work, Kunal Patel, one of our producers, took a trip to the airport.
7: So it's currently 6 a.m. in the morning, and I am in London Stansett Airport waiting for my flight to Sweden to talk to a man about some robots. And so after one hour of sleep, a two-hour flight, and three flight attendants who did not take kindly to my microphone, I found myself in a lab in Chalmers Technical University in Gothenburg, Sweden. And that's where researcher Eric Bierstrom introduced me to Eve.
0: So, this is Eve.
7: Eve, as it turns out, is a huge metal box with an extensive array of equipment.
0: Here we have the two robot arms. Over there, we have a spectrophotometer. And we have a fluorescence microscope. Here we have another spectrophotometer. That over there is a liquid handler.
7: But the really impressive thing about Eve is that she's not just a fancy mechanized lab station it's that she's actually an AI, capable of independently coming up with and conducting her own experiments, all part of an ambitious vision for the future of science.
2: The uh, grand challenge is to, by the year 2050, to develop an AI which can autonomously do research at the Nobel Prize level. And of course, if you could build such a machine, then you can build 10 of them, 100 of them. and a thousand, uh, a million perhaps, and the world would be transformed if a million Nobel Prize winners.
7: That's Ross King. He's Professor of Machine Intelligence at Chalmers Technical University and Professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering and Biotechnology at the University of Cambridge. Ross is ostensibly Eve's father, and he's one of the scientists heralding this new way of doing research, I sat down with him to figure out how exactly one goes about building an autonomous robotic
2: scientist. Okay, so the first thing you need to do is inform the system about an area of science. You need to put in some background knowledge about that area of science. Then you need to have a way of forming novel hypotheses about that area of science. And you also then need some way of deciding on efficient experiments to test these hypotheses. And then you need to have lab robots which can actually do experiments. And then you need some overarching system to control it all and decide what to do. So it's quite a difficult engineering task to put all this together. So having seen Eve, she is very impressive.
7: But I do have to ask, why go through all of this effort to do this research? At some level, it seems surely it'd be simpler for maybe just to have a person do it than develop this whole elaborate robotic system to, to conduct this research.
2: One of the potential advantages of having robots and AI systems do things is that they record more information, so to make it more reproducible. And that's a big problem. And It's shocking, but roughly about half of the papers published in top journals in biomedicine can't be reproduced in another lab, the results. And that's not because of scientific misconduct, it's just that these experiments are so delicate and difficult to execute they're really hard to get working in different places. Most of the problems are down to not recording enough about the situation. Robots are much better at recording information and that's very important because unless you record everything you can't be sure that their experiment is exactly the same as another experiment in another lab. So that's one of the key advantages of automation at the moment. The other one is just the amount of quantity which you can do using AI and robotics. You can potentially do orders of magnitude more experiments. Not just the same experiment over and over again, but each experiment can be designed to test a hypothesis.
7: Essentially, in the near future, Ross sees AI as having the potential to take on some of the most menial and finicky bits of scientific research, reproducing experiments to corroborate results and conducting the kind of tedious and repetitive pipetting procedures that made me give up on the idea of grad school. So I'm currently squatting under Eve, waiting for a little door to open and a Petri dish to come out with some yeast in it. I live a very glamorous life. Not necessarily the most fascinating thing, but the fact that it's all completely automated and that there's an artificial intelligence system running this entire operation is kind of crazy because there's just so
0: many moving parts. The point of EVE was to make a very generalised robot that can do many different things. I would personally describe EVE as an automated PhD student. So they're just performing experiments for the PI.
7: Ross is the first to admit that the research these sorts of robots are currently capable of isn't exactly glitzy or groundbreaking. But he has high hopes for the future of this technology.
2: At the moment, the doing boring experiments. But I think in the future, they can do better and better at that and design beautiful experiments. I'm ambitious about it. I think that we can really make the scientific process more cost-effective by automation. And I think science can be made much more effective and efficient with the help of AI.
7: Admittedly though, when it comes to robot human workplace integration, there's still a few kinks to work
0: out. So the robot arms are very powerful and move quite fast, so it's important that we are not hurt by it. So what we have is a light gate. So while the experiment is going on, please don't like reach in because that's going to stop the experiment. So Eve moves fast enough to like potentially hurt. Yeah, so I think right now it's set as ten percent speed, which is quite slow. But I've heard stories from colleagues that have had like plates flung at them. So e- Eve specifically has accidentally flung things at people before. Yes. So it's important to be careful when we work with you.
1: I'm back with The Economist, Tom Standage. Tom, just to be clear about these self-driving labs, these robotic scientists, how autonomous are they? They're controlled by AI to make new hypotheses and can do clever things, but they're still sort of told what to do by humans, aren't
3: they? So how interesting and creative can they actually be? Yes, you're right. At the moment, they're given a particular domain, whether it's material science or you know molecular biology. I think the hope is that they will be able to work in a wider way in the future. And as the robots get cleverer and the AI gets cleverer, they'll be able to do new kinds of experiments. And then really beyond that, the hope is that they might start thinking of things to investigate that humans might not have done. And there's a very nice analogy here, which is to do with the way that machines play chess and play Go. And now we have machines that are better at chess and better at Go than any human. But what's been really interesting is that both the chess playing and the Go playing systems have come up with strategies and moves that have completely flummoxed human players. And it's changed the way that humans think about chess and it certainly changed the way humans think about go there's turns out to be a sort of undiscovered unexplored hypothesis space in those game worlds and the machines have opened it up and so that's the hope that could happen in science as well there may be things that we're not thinking of testing or experiments that we're not doing because we are humans and we just have a different way of looking at the world and a machine might not see things that way and might therefore open up the hypothesis space and be able to discover new things but of course, robot labs
1: can just do lots of experiments as well. And these AI-driven lab robots could help with some of those problems that exist in modern science. There's terrible incentives, can't they?
3: Yes, I think so. So there may be new kinds of science where just throwing sheer volume at the problem could be a game changer. So that's a possibility. And then yes, the reproducibility crisis, as it's called, you could also throw robots at that problem as well. Because the incentive for a robot is not to advance its career and, you know, publish something new. And there have been experiments done with exactly this, where previous results from cancer papers, for example, have been verified by robot scientists. So I think at best these new robot scientists could come up with entirely new results and go off in entirely new directions. But even if they don't do that, they could improve the process of science itself by making it cheaper and easier to verify results and allowing you to do the kind of science you were maybe going to do anyway more quickly and more efficiently.
1: Okay, so does all of this mean that you know all of these exciting technologies are going to be adopted by scientists tomorrow? Do you, do you see it coming very
3: soon? Well it's very striking the people i spoke to said that there has been a change and i think it's been you know this broader change that AI didn't work for a long time. It was a term that people didn't even want to use. The people who were pursuing the application of AI to science were mostly a bunch of AI researchers. And the scientists would very often say, Go away. What are you doing? Uh, why are you here? This robot's going to take my job. Um, you know, or I'm, I, this looks scary. So there was a lot of skepticism or hostility. So what's changed is that, particularly in the last couple of years, it's been very clear that this is a technology that can potentially make a big difference in a lot fields. So why not in science? And so you're starting to see people in more and more scientific fields looking for people who are AI specialists to collaborate with. So that seems to be the tipping point that we're, we're at now or we've just passed. So that's an interesting shift. But I think there are still some quite important sociological barriers to the broader embrace of these technologies within science, just as there was opposition to previous changes. And scientists have to want to use these tools and they have to know how to use them.
1: Are there things that governments and others could be doing to sort of encourage this? Because it would be in everyone's interest if uh, I could be made to speed up science.
3: Well, governments do have quite a lot of influence here because of the amount of publicly funded science. So we've already seen in recent years that publicly funded science puts pressure on researchers to make sure that their results are more widely available by publishing in open access journals and so on. And the sort of equivalent of that for this kind of technology is ensuring that the data that comes out of laboratory experiments and things like robot scientists is available in open standards and open formats so that it can be crunched by other AI systems. A lot of the time it ends up in a table in a PDF. That's harder for another system to read it. So there are open standards for this sort of thing and governments could try to encourage people to use those standards so that more data is available for these systems to crunch on. And the other thing that governments could do is fund kinds of AI that are unfashionable. So at the moment, the really fashionable kind of AI is the large language model like ChatGPT and anything using deep learning. But we should remember that deep learning, the systems that we're using today only exists because the flame of neural networks was kept alive in the 90s and the 2000s by CIFAR, which is the Canadian, essentially, science funding body. And so the question is, you know, are there other currently neglected, currently really unfashionable styles of AI that could be particularly useful in scientific discovery? That's something that governments could be making sure that they're funding as well.
1: I mean, many of the people who sort of promote the idea that AI could transform science will say that if it could maybe be made to work for science, and supercharge scientific productivity. It would probably be one of the most useful things that AI could do. But there have been previous technologies that were meant to be saving the world as well, which always had a downside. I mean, I just wonder if, as, as somebody who knows about the history of technology very, very well, where do you put AI in the sort of in the pantheon of great technologies that promise all sorts of things?
3: Yes, absolutely. So I'm a collector of those sorts of examples, and I'm well aware of the fact that whenever a new technology comes along, people say this is the solution to all our problems. Aeroplanes, when they're invented, people say this is going to make armies obsolete because you can bomb them from the air. Therefore, there will be world peace. Also, we'll all sort of fly to different countries and see that we're all just the same, and therefore there'll be no more wars. And surprise, surprise, that didn't happen. Then, yes, we get this with the internet in the 1990s. Again, we're going to have global communities of people. We'll all realize we're the same. It will reduce inequality and poverty because you'll be able to get access to world class education online. These sorts of claims. But I think in this case, it's a narrower claim that's being made. It's not claimed that we are going to sort of re-engineer human nature. This isn't quite as magical thinking, I don't think. The mechanism is much more plausible and much more visible, which is if you can increase the rate at which new discoveries are made We've seen from the historical evidence that that can lead to a faster rate of technological innovation. And at a time when we have a whole load of problems that need to be solved through technological innovation, that's not a bad idea.
1: Okay, so I'm going to mark you out as a cautious optimist in this case.
3: Is that fair? I I think that's right. Exactly, exactly.
1: All right, Tom, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Our thanks to Ross King, Eric Bierstrom, Pushmeet Kohli, jane dyson and the economists abby Vertix and tom standage and thank you for listening to babbage you can read our entire special report on how ai can revolutionize science in the current issue of the economist or on our app babbage is produced by jason hoskin and kanal patel with mixing and sound design by james stickland the executive producer is marguerite howell i'm alok jar and in london this is the economist